You're listening to Atlas of Chiropractic, the show where we uncover upper cervical chiropractic care for healthcare professionals, students, and potential patients. I'm Dr. John Stenberg, and with my co-host, Dr. Cameron Bearder, we are your guides to a behind-the-scenes look at the science and practice of upper cervical chiropractic. Welcome back to the Atlas of Chiropractic. Uh, this is going to be a really fun episode, and I'm excited to have my guest back on. Dr. Gordon Elder was actually the first interview uh, ever published on the, the Blair Technique podcast a number of years ago. And I don't know if we've actually been back together on here since, uh, but we've had nope. tons of conversations in between now and then. So I'm really interested to see how these topics get uh, get addressed. And, and here's a cool thing about this podcast. And I always encourage folks that listen to send your questions. Our entire discussion today about the Blair Technique is going to be answering listener questions. These are things that folks sent me that they would like answers and some uh, you know some insights on. And so we're gonna we're gonna handle that exclusively. And so the only things on our agenda to talk about today are listener questions related to checks in the Blair technique. So different daily exam procedures that we use to determine if a patient needs to be adjusted, if they don't need to be adjusted, which segment, if we did a proper adjustment, did it check out properly, and all that sort of thing. And so this would be a really fun conversation. And Dr. Elder, um, I know he doesn't think he's an expert, but there aren't that many people that have dedicated as much time and energy and effort to understanding this technique in all of its facets, you know, from the adjustments to the checks, to the case management, to, you know, what the patient experiences. He's really, really gone deep into it. So he was the perfect guy to bring to the table for this discussion. He's an advanced certified instructor. Uh, he's basically revamped the uh, testing and certification process for the Blair Society and, as much as he doesn't seem like an expert, I don't, I don't know anyone else who's, you know, working in that, in that direction these days. So he is uh, our subject matter expert for today. And Dr. Elder is also the, uh, the clinic director and chiropractor at the, the Blair Clinic in Lubbock, Texas. So he's kind of the uh, third generation, I guess, doctor to run that clinic uh, following Dr. Blair, Dr. Addington, now Dr. Elder. So he's highly qualified to have this conversation and I'm, I'm, I'll share maybe a few insights of my own, but I'm definitely going to defer to the wisdom of Dr. Elder on this one and uh, really excited. So before we get too deep into the weeds, is there anything else you want to add to the intro, maybe your your perspective or background with Blair? You know, John, thanks for having me on again, but um, you're right. I don't, I know that I've got a lot of experience. And I know that it's a lot more than a lot of other people who haven't been practicing as long. I also know that there's younger people, or I should say people younger in the technique who know more about some things than I do. And I listen to them. And there's a lot of people who've been practicing longer uh, who have really good things to say as well. So I guess the one thing I can say is I never stop thinking and questioning, which is a blessing and a curse all at the same time. So what I'm going to share today, whatever these questions are, are just, these are my thought patterns. These are some of the people that I've interviewed or had as mentors or asked questions of. This is this was their view, or at least what I understood to be their view. I won't say that I understand uh, completely everybody all the time, of course, but that's going to be my my understanding of of how things work, how it's understood, how other people understand it to work. 
and we'll just go from there. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. And, the, and I guess the, the takeaway with that is there is a family tree of people that lead us on in this technique and, and sort of help shape us and mold us and answer these questions as they come along. And uh, it's interesting now that we have technology to be able to expand the information you have access to. But, you know, as you were coming up, it wasn't that easy, you know, to be able mm -hmm. to just plug into a podcast and hear someone speak on these topics. So right. uh, I think sometimes when you when you get gather information with a lot more effort, I don't know, there's something to that. Uh, and, and it's so easy to gather information now. It's almost like nobody really, you know, integrates much of it. It's just this constant overload and input. So slow down and listen to what Dr. Elder has to say. And then I'll encourage you if you have follow-up questions to connect with him offline, because it's really fun to talk about this stuff. So that being said, I want to get right to the reason for the question. So a doc sent me a few questions. I won't, I won't say who, um, but a, a listener of the podcast, an associate doctor working in another Blair clinic. And the question at the end of the question, uh, I guess to, is, is really the important one. And what he said is, I often wonder when I don't get ideal results, if it was because I over or under adjusted based on checks that aren't valid. So I can appreciate that insecurity, you know, because coming into practice as a brand new doc, you don't have experience to lean on. You just have what you're seeing in front of you and what other people have told you. And so there's a lot of doubt and there can be a lot of moments of insecurity where you think you're doing the best you can, but you don't know what you don't know. And uh, that can be kind of an uncomfortable feeling when you're really eager to help people. And, and a lot of the folks we see are suffering, you know, tremendously and need need us to help them thoughtfully and, you know, to deliver on what we know the technique's capable of. So a couple things that, I, that we don't know about this question to kind of help fill in the gaps is, number one, what are ideal results? You know, when you're saying you're not getting ideal results, does that mean you're not getting straight lines on thermography? Does that mean you're not seeing patient symptoms resolve as quickly as you would like? You know, so when we talk about results, each patient, each doctor is going to kind of have a different definition of that, unfortunately, but to, to each of us with our chiropractic values, there are things that are most important for us to deliver to our patients. And that's what results mean to us. And it's going to be a combination of objective and subjective things. So we don't quite know what type of results we're not getting. Uh, which would help answer the question, but we'll just kind of leave it at that. And the other comment on um, knowing if I've over or under adjusted based on the checks and are these checks valid? And really you only have two options. You can either overdo it or underdo it, right? Uh, we want to do the, you know, the um, three little pigs move and have it just right. Uh, but in truth, there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into things working out exactly right. Uh, so that's that's the, kind of the concept that we're going to approach is this is the thought process. This is the challenge, the struggle that a young doctor and, and I'm sure a lot of students and other young doctors can relate to as well. And so it's there's a couple things that you can do in these scenarios because I've done both. Number one is doubt yourself and say, I'm not doing good enough. I don't know enough. I need to work harder, learn more, figure out what I'm doing wrong. The other thing is you can doubt the technique. And say, well, I don't know if these checks are telling me what they say they're telling me. So, you know, am I am I using the right analysis for what I'm trying to accomplish? Um, and so it seems like there may be a little dose of both of those going on, and that's totally understandable. So we're going to try to address it the best way that we can for today. Um, so, Doc, why don't you just first, before we talk about 
the different checks, the, the validity of them, how we integrate or use those. Let's just kind of explain to the listeners what a daily Blair checkup looks like. like what things are we actually measuring on a daily checkup for a Blair patient? Okay, so the um, the classic two that we or those that have gone before us have decided are the most reliable are, of course, the thermography, which is considered the gold standard, and then the leg tests, of which there are some different variations. When I was um, a young doctor, well, when I was a patient before I was ever a doctor, uh, I was a patient of Dr. Muncie, and he used thermography almost exclusively. You hardly ever got a leg check unless you were a brand new patient or there was something he just wasn't sure about. Other than that, I really don't know what his um, dis- how what his decision process was for when he was going to do a leg check. But I uh, rarely got a leg check when I went to his office. It was all thermography. And he was not using the Titron. That was, of course, much later um, technology. And he did not, when it did come out, he did not embrace it right away either. In fact, he never did embrace it entirely. He had one and would use it occasionally just to kind of test it out. But he was so brilliant with the thermography that that um, with, the, with the technology that he had, that the Titron wasn't going to add anything. And there is differences between the old thermocouples and the Titrons, what kind and how much of information you can get. And I am not an expert on that. But And the other one, the leg test, um, that was um, started, I believe, with BJ, but uh, it has been developed, and we tend to use the Thompson-Deerfield test. And then Dr. Muncie was talking to Dr. Prill, an SOT doctor, and modified some of the leg tests he had to help give a hint as to what area of the upper cervical spine may or may not need to be adjusted. And Really, what we want to look at with those is more a pattern analysis instead of a direct it's C2 or C1 or C3, but it can give us some hints. That's a good, that's a very important distinction to make because like the pro leg checks, for example, are, you're you're making a couple of some, there's a few leaps to make, you know, to associate what we say they're testing with what they may actually be testing and the correlation so there's context for all this stuff. And, and the context is that you did a good exam in the first place, that you right. established a proper thermographic pattern, that you did a proper analysis of your images, whether they're x-rays or CBCTs, and, and you've got good data to start with. And so that's, that's kind of the assumption in this too. And each, each doctor handles their initial exam procedures slightly differently. Some folks may include other things like you know, posture or other types of assessments. Uh, but for the daily checkups, infrared paraspinal thermography using the titron instrument and the prone these these leg checks are done in the prone position as opposed to some other upper cervical techniques will do a supine leg check and some blair doctors do supine leg checks as well some do both and so there's there's differences of you know, things that you can do which is at the heart of the question but standard sort of blair technique basic assessment paraspinal thermography a series of leg tests on the table uh, and that is your data that you gather to make a decision with. And all of that is interpreted in the pattern that the patient presents when they are subluxated. And so that could involve that could involve several different indicators. You know, it could involve one or two. It could 
they one could be stronger than the other, right? Some folks may show pattern more clearly on thermography. Some may show it more clearly on leg tests. So it takes time to learn that for each patient. All the more reason to check a lot of things and be conservative with adjusting so that you can over time make observations about what's actually changing. Yeah, I agree. The um, There is an element of being a doctor. Otherwise, you're just a technician, right? What does a technician do? He just reads the signs and does what he follows the instruction, does what he's supposed to. And that does attract a lot of people to, I believe, the Blair upper cervical technique. But there's a lot of gray area when you're dealing with human beings, whether that be reading the x-rays, taking the x-rays, reading the x-rays, interpreting the x-rays, on through interpreting, doing and interpreting these tests and what you have to do. The vast majority of people are are going to be fairly standard, which is nice. Uh, it takes a lot of the um, the worry out of it, of course. But it's the difficult cases, like our questioner was talking about. What about when they don't respond? And there's so many different things to look at. Did I take the X-rays right? Did I analyze the X-rays right? Did I establish a good pattern? Did I take the do the you know test right on this particular occasion? And yes, did I did I adjust too soon, or should I have waited? Interestingly, Doctor Blair did not adjust when somebody came in and they were in pattern. He would make them come in within six days. I think it could be later that day, but it couldn't be seven days. It had to be within six days. Uh, he was of the opinion that in seven days you were back into another pattern cycle, and so you could just be showing the same thing over again. So you had to be in pattern twice before you would actually do an adjustment. And that's a, that is a staunch way to practice, right? It takes a lot of patient compliance for them to follow through and get good results. And we don't really know Dr. Blair's stats and what his PVA was, but I'm sure there were folks that just found that tough to manage. But I appreciate when someone sticks to their convictions, you know, and and make sure that they, they treat patients in a way that they feel is absolutely best. And if that's what it takes, that's smart. And it's, there are lots of occasions where you have no idea what's walking in, you know, and what's been going on in someone's life when they come into the office, even the stuff they tell us, the stuff they don't tell us, you know, there's so many variables that affect their physiology right? that are without our control, you know, and they're not even within the scope of chiropractic 99% of the time. Uh, so there, there's a lot of things that can confuse the data that we're collecting. And so as much as we like it to be, following the the standard operating procedure, this is not the case, you know, like you said, working with humans and you can get really frustrated or you can adapt your systems to try to get better information, get uh, more repeatable information and at least kind of isolate the variables on your side of it, because that's the last thing they need is for you to confuse it by doing something different every time they come in or checking different things, forgot to scan that day, you know, another day you, you, Figured you'd adjust them on the scan so you didn't do a leg check. You know, you, you got to be consistent in your procedures. And, and as an associate doctor, you don't really have a lot of control over that. So part of what the constraint in, in a lot of associate situations is you're going to be trained in the in the procedures of the clinic. And I think that's smart. I think a lot of associate doctors will be frustrated with that because they want to dabble and try. But you kind of got to have a you got to have a foundation to work with so that you can dabble and try and understand what you're seeing. Exactly right. When I I see it often, um, and I understand the temptation, of course, having been a young doctor and now being an older doctor, uh, the temptation is still there is is to 
try out some different things to dabble. But if you don't know how good you are in the first place, you don't know if the thing that you tried out was better or worse. And if you don't keep your own statistics on adjustments, you don't know. So I keep my statistics on, you know, on average, how many patients need to be readjusted in the first, um, I do a 16 week care plan initially. So to get through the second repair cycle. So in the first 16 weeks, how many patients uh, have to be adjusted? So then I readjusted. So then if I go back and make a change and I'm consistent with that change over a period of time, I can look and see are people on average, because there's no way to tell on a single case, of course, on average, are people holding their adjustments better with this this one particular change? Yeah. And for, for you and for a lot of upper cervical doctors, that's kind of the results. Part of it is that is a key metric of success is how well the patient's holding their adjustment. So again, you're going to kind of filter what changes to make and how effective they are toward that end. So you got to kind of go back to the beginning, which is what result are we after? And uh, I think that's a, I mean, that is the upper cervical result, right? Is, is the adjustment holding and the patient requiring less intervention and healing more completely in between. But you can also, you know, build that out with other things if you see fit. Right. Um, so let's kind of get to the, the bit about reliability and validity and sort of the scientific basis. Cause I know a lot of folks are really, uh, interested in like, is there study that supports this? Like, what is the scientific basis for these checks? Are we doing them just because they're historically reliable? Or is there some level of evidence? And when I say level of evidence, I mean, in a scientific setting, that would support that these things are valid and reliable checks for what we are checking for. So let's kind of maybe isolate out first the paraspinal thermography. And I did an, an episode with um, Roger Titone, the guy who developed this technology, and we talked about this. We talked about the research done to support thermography in general, but then infrared paraspinal thermography, the differences between those thermocouple and infrared instruments in the, in the uh, I guess, thermology of what they're actually measuring. Uh, so go back and listen to that episode for a deep dive on thermography, but um, even, even to the like CLA and the um, uh, Patrick Gentempo, Chris Kent paper from a number of years ago. And this was one of the five to seven valid and reliable indicators of neurophysiological dysfunction that a chiropractor can use. I mean, that, that is well-established scientifically. The Umiatsu paper is kind of like the, the one that we all really lean on historically. But then you've also got Dr. Amalu's work with paraspinal thermography. Um, you've got the American College of Thermologists or whatever it is that they, they study this stuff and they look at it with infrared cameras and such. So uh, there's actually a pretty, there's a pretty substantial level of evidence that that thermography does measure neurophysiological differences in the temperature of the skin side to side, right? So that's what it measures, right? And that's what we know scientifically it measures. Now, the interpretation of what does that mean for the patient that's a, that's what the real question is. And, and that's where I'd like you to weigh in and say, you know, traditionally in how we've, we've taught this uh, versus what you actually think, you know, we're measuring with, uh, with thermography, because I've heard a lot of people say this, because this is a BJ Palmer thing. Well, when the Atlas goes out, it pinches a nerve. And when there's resistance to nerve flow, it generates heat. 
and the heat gets dissipated on the surface of the skin, and then you got a hot side and a cold side. Objectively, that's not true. That was the theory in 1930-something. We know a little bit different now, but we know that it's not heat because there's resistance to nerve flow that is causing heat like a, like a fuse box or like in an electrical circuit. So what are we actually measuring with thermography? Yeah, isn't that cool? Just a, a brief aside on that. We, we have our theories that make sense with the information we have now, right? And, but we need to be open to the fact that we'll have more information later and things may change. So our, our model of reality is going to change because nobody can really understand. Reality is too complex for any one person to totally wrap their mind around. But as we begin to ask questions and test, we change the idea of, you know, what is at the center of the universe? You know, does the sun go around the earth and so on? And things that seem so manifestly obvious and true later on, we realize, oh, okay, it's not quite how it goes. This is why it seemed true. And this is uh, the actual reason, or at least the reason with the information that we have now. And thermography was like that. And and now we're looking at the uh, the flow of blood through the skin and the uh, muscles that are around the blood vessels controlled by the autonomic nurse nervous system that uh, open or close those down. And that's our current understanding seems to be fairly well established. Um, and so then the nerves that are going to those little muscles coming from different segments, one of the reasons we don't decide that we need to adjust somebody where there's a hot spot or a cold spot is because we know those nerves combine and diverge uh, and can come from somewhere else entirely. So that's why, at least in the Blair uh, upper cervical technique, we're looking for a pattern, not specifically for it to tell us where to adjust based on its raw data. But after we've measured three times, I think uh, Jeff Hanna, who knows this so much better than I do, said that you start doing more than that and you've you start getting too much information and you do less than that and you don't have enough information. Three is kind of, as you mentioned before, the three little pigs, a sweet spot there. But you do it three times correctly. You have to do that well. There's a learning curve there to do it to do it right. And that'll give you a pattern. Now, what that is is also changing now that uh, Roger Titone has changed his program a little bit and it'll analyze uh, sections, not just not just make you put your lines and points in there. So I'm very interested uh, in hearing more about the research for our purposes, what those regions mean. And if we're looking at the right side of the neck and if that looks in pattern versus the left side of the neck versus the uh, center, you know, amalgamation, I forgot what it's called. The, uh, the, uh, it's a direct temperature is on the left and the right. And the Delta the T Delta, yeah. is, yeah, is in the center, and we've always used the delta T. But what if the delta T isn't patterned, but the left and the right, the directs are? So, better technology, more information, more questions, and so we can continue at least using what we know from the past works, which is using the delta T. But maybe now we can also start to progress and get more information by looking at the direct temperatures and the regions and so forth. So. Uh, it's something that um, I'm fascinated by, frustrated by, um, don't feel like I know enough. And there, I know there's smart guys out there like Jeff Hanna and, and uh, in the Blair technique and, and then other techniques, you know, Kessinger uh, with his uh, 
KCUCS, he's, he does really well teaching people how to look for pattern in his particular way. In fact, when I was going, when I was learning the Blair technique, it was not taught well. I went to a school where that was not taught at all. And Dr. Muncy and Dr. Blair, not that I learned from Dr. Blair, but Dr. Muncy learned it so well in school that, you know, the Blair technique was something that you learned after you already knew that. You yeah. learned that in school. And so it was kind of just passed over. So I was, I was many years never, never comfortable with the thermography. Finally was able to start with technology. Like you said, technology came along. You can start to take classes without having to travel somewhere. and um, and took their program and then Jeff developed his and Ian Bulow does some good teaching on that. So now it's much easier and I, I feel much more confident. I feel like I lost a lot of years. I've been in practice 23 years now, and but I would not say that I've been doing thermography well for 23 years. In fact, I still sometimes feel like I'm still not doing it as well as I should. But there's so many variables too. I mean, patient comes in and there's, you know, supposed to uh, acclimatize, you know, put up their hair, open up their collar, sit there for a few minutes. Uh, um, and you, there's some different versions out there of how long that's supposed to be, but um, they're not, it's better if they don't have caffeine in their system, if they don't have suppressants in their system. Well, how many patients are going to come in into you and lie? So you just can't, there's so many things that are actually outside of your control. You can make them sit in the room and acclimatize. That's really, and you can tell them, but that's really all you can control. Uh, and then as soon as you ask them a question, they put their hand, even if you tell uh, them, every don't time. put your hand on the back of the neck. They're like, every it hurts. They just start rubbing it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You're like, yep. oh, I need to ask these questions after I run the draft. But um, so there's a lot of learning curve. There's a lot of slipping and checking and just continually uh, training yourself, remembering what to do. My staff, I've actually trained to do the thermography and I find that, of course, their understanding is not quite as good as mine for some reason. And so I'm having to train and retrain and maybe redo things sometimes. But they do a good job. It is a it is something that I can train somebody else to do, not to read, not to interpret, but to actually do the mechanical action of it and uh, and work with that. Now, here's something else just to throw in there, John, before we go on to something else. Pattern analysis, what do we do with that? So I told you that Dr. Muncy, that was the primary thing he used uh, just to analyze you at all. Um, Dr. Harkins, who learned, went to Harvard, although it was post the strong for cervical days, um, learned directly from Dr. Blair. He, um, he looks at the thermography more as a way to see what part of the repair cycle the patient is in. So he doesn't use it to determine whether somebody needs to be adjusted or not, or at least that's not his primary. His primary is the leg test, and he's been practicing 40-something years, twice as long as I have, although I'm catching up. But uh, so that's his theory. His theory is that it, it, you know, he can see the pattern come and if his legs are still level and he doesn't adjust, eventually the pattern goes away again. And sometimes the symptoms will come and go. And he's correlating that with repair cycles, which I find to be a very attractive way to look at it. Um, I, I like that. I don't know if it's valid, but I really like that. And, and so I'm always considering that as well. So you've got people who've been practicing for many, many more years than I do and know more than I do doing it in two, two totally different, seemingly opposite ways. 
And and it's so fascinating to think about. Like I, I made a, a note to talk about repair cycles later because even some of the, the the principles that we apply for the management, I guess case management of upper cervical patients, it's like where's the science to support that? You know, we see it anecdotally and we observe and and you know track these consistent patterns. Well, not everybody does. You know, not everybody is in the, of the same opinion on that stuff. And it's like, how are we, you know, how are we to understand, you know, like you said, with new information, like not to throw the baby out with the bathwater or reinvent the wheel, but like take these concepts and develop them a little bit further with the, with the science understanding we have. And at what point do we say, you know what, there's really not a solid scientific, you know, evidence base for this concept. And even though we make the observation, you know, maybe it's not something that is as, you know, as reliable in the science as we you know, would like it to be. So there's a difference between clinical utility and scientifically valid. And that doesn't mean that things that are, that have clinical utility, but you can't find evidence for on PubMed doesn't mean you need to just ne- neglect them or throw them out. It just means that we've got to support them with the science, or we've got to reevaluate those things uh, with the science. Because clinical utility, and, and by the way, I, I'll challenge any healthcare professional that says that everything they do is science based. It's not true. Every word out of their mouth, every you know, th- there is there is a aspect of practice in healthcare that has to do with what you've learned, what you've been taught, things you've observed, wisdom of you know of many patient interactions over many, many years that you apply and not everything is, you know, indexed on PubMed. So, but for those of you that have that scientific mind, just be aware that you're going to run into some, you know, you're going to run into some challenges, finding a paper on retracing, finding a paper on, you know, cycles of repair and there's tissue times and all those sorts of things that we reference, but it is, it is one of those things that I've struggled with. It's like, you know, I have a hard time with it. I don't really talk to patients about it as much anymore. And when I observe it, I go, hmm, interesting. And, uh, you know, we maybe have a brief conversation, but I know some folks are very adamant about like from the very beginning telling people you are going to go through this cycle. And I wonder if that has something to do with why they see more patients that experience that. Not, not that it's a nocebo, but if it implants this subconscious understanding of how they're healing and if there's a, if there's a reflection of that in their physiology, but, um, but you're right. There is more information comes at us all the time. And so you can get yourself into analysis paralysis going like, well, was this technique? Is this all just, you know, built on a house of cards? Is nothing important? And then you become one of these like, um, you know, super negative people that just feels like you can't do anything right. And I don't think that's right either. Uh, but it is good to test our, our theories and concepts and then apply scientific rigor to them and then hopefully develop them over time. Right. Have you ever heard of angiosomes? Nope, I don't think I have. Okay, there's, so there's dermatomes, right? We know that right. there's you know skin myotomes. surface. Mm-hmm. Yep, myotomes. There's also angiosomes. So if people want to look that up, you can you can find information about you know what segmental levels potentially sympathetically innervate uh, different skin surfaces. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting thing if someone wants to follow up and dig into it. But on thermography. The key takeaway is this: it has been proven to be to be reliable and valid, both intra and inter examiner reliability for detecting neurophysiological stress. 
Boom. We know that's true. Okay. So you can hang your hat on that one. If you don't feel confident with your technique in either acquiring or analyzing scans, get Dr. Jeff Hanna's uh, program on this. And he learned from the folks at KCUCS and everyone else in his mad scientist way of doing things mm-hmm. and put this amazing, I think it's like six or nine hour thermography set of modules. You could literally sit down with that thing on a Saturday and then on Monday be doing excellent high level ther- therm- thermography. So really, really encourage you to, to invest in that because that knowledge will serve you well as an upper cervical chiropractor. Um, so there's another follow-up question to this, speaking of thermography, which is how strictly do we stick to pattern analysis? You know, is this, like you were saying, Dr. Muncy, he had such a level of confidence in his ability to interpret that information and understand what was going on with the patient, that that was most of his decision-making. A lot of docs don't feel that way. You, you express the sentiment that you didn't have that same level of confidence because of your background. Um, so I think I know your answer to this, but when it comes to thermography, you know, how, how should we weigh that, you know, in our decision-making? Well, the first thing I'm going to say is that, as you've already mentioned, it does depend on the case. Now, that's usually a rare situation where you're going to do something different than what you've already been doing, you know, or the way you already interpret them. So as far as the Blair technique goes, thermography is the gold standard. And I like that idea. I don't practice that way. Partly because I spent so many years honing my skills with leg tests and challenge tests, which I've got some really good information on that, but, or maybe I should say good thoughts on that, or maybe I should just say thoughts on that, which we'll get into later. But um, the uh, thermography for me is secondary. And I don't really like that. And I don't like saying that, but it is absolutely true. When I'm in my office and I run a thermo, when I run a graph or I look at the graph that's been run and it's not pattern, maybe it's pattern tendency, maybe it's adaptive, stressed, and they've got a they've got a leg length inequality. I am much more likely to adjust them than if their pattern, if their thermography is in pattern and their legs are even. Now, ideally, what I want to see is I want them both to agree. And this is what I tell my patients. I really I want them to agree. And so if I'm seeing a leg length inequality and it's really obviously not patterned thermographically, I'm much more likely to wait. But the but uh, the reverse is probably not true. I do I do use the I just got really really good results. Could I get better? <laughs> Maybe if I if I was stronger with my thermography. But um, that's how I do it in my practice. Yeah, and it is you know we we talked a little bit about the variables, and it is impossible to isolate all those. So you have to live with a certain amount of variability in the test that you can perform. You know, unless unless you're gonna you know, really slow down and, and have everybody do everything perfectly. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of the flip. I actually didn't think I was as confident in thermography until recently. I had some glitch with my software and had a morning where I couldn't take any scans and I was really struggling. I felt like I felt very insecure in my decision making. And uh, I realized that I do, you know, I do uh, ascribe maybe a little bit higher level of, of uh, importance in just, just having that, just having that test performed. You know, I don't, I don't think of it in the same way that a lot of people do. Maybe I think it's, it's more of a, um, 
Like, I like the idea of Dr. Harkins, like looking at it in, in cycles, but I don't know that I'll see that many patients for years and years and years and years that I'll ever observe those cycles and make it worth it for them. Uh, so we do kind of have a little bit more of a short-term, uh, you know, short-term view of that physiology. But yeah, I, I feel really almost the opposite. And this will just go to show because Dr. Gordon trained me. He's the guy that I've learned from <laughs> <Yep>. the most. <laughs> uh, and it's funny because, you know, with, with each of our, our brains and the way that we process and think and our experiences, you know, those things weigh differently. So I think the answer to your question is it's going to depend on the doctor and it's going to depend again on the results. If you came up from a knee chest background where if you don't have a straight line, you're a piece of crap and you suck as a chiropractor, then you're going to have a hard time with leg checks. And, and if you're not, you're also going to have a hard time with thermography because you can make the argument that a straight line isn't better. But um, it, it's all that stuff factors in. So we understand it's valid and reliable. How you weigh that as a doctor comes down to, to your own decision making. I kind of, and this, I, I like your opinion on this. I kind of like local checks. You know, I like checks that are a lot more regionally local to the area of interest. And, and so we're, we're talking about cervical spine scans for anybody who did maybe missed that part of it. I, I understand and appreciate the mechanisms with leg checks, but I also understand and appreciate all of the not upper cervical mechanisms that impact leg checks. But I don't know too many situations where a pelvic misalignment is going to cause a local irritation in the cervical spine. Some Gonstead doc is probably screaming right now, but, but I like the idea of local checks, whether it's palpation, the stress and pressure tests we're going to talk about cervical spine thermography. Like I, for some reason, I just realized this about myself, that local check makes me feel more confident. And then I like to like validate it and verify it globally and see what we do understand that there's a systemic global impact and these mechanisms are well-established with leg checks, which we're about to talk about. Uh, but just for, for listeners, I mean, that's when we have differences of opinion, sometimes we don't understand the reasons why we think the way we do. And then every, every once in a while, you get a little insight. And I just realized that about myself locally, because I'm more likely now so, and that this has a lot to do with things I learned from Dr. Harkins as well, to just get in there and palpate. Take a scan, mm -hmm. get in there and just feel the neck. I mean, it is an underappreciated skill that I think every upper cervical chiropractor really needs to spend probably more time on than a full spine chiropractor because we are dealing with millimeters and we are dealing with very specific contact points and we're dealing with very specific types of misalignments. I really appreciate, you know, the, the sensitivity of our fingertips to be able to help, you know, provide some information there too. And, and there is conflicting information about palpation out there. There's a lot of big arguments about, you know, how reliable or valid, static or motion palpation of the spine is, I think you and I understand that there's a lot of asymmetry in the spine that affects that research. Um, but food for thought on palpation before we move on to leg checks. Yes. So when I was, I almost said being raised, when I was being raised in chiropractic, uh, student, young doctor, unfortunately, I absorbed the idea that palpation was not important except to find the contact point. Now, I, I can't necessarily, I don't remember specifically anybody telling me that, but that was kind of the ethos or the idea that was communicated to me, or at least that I took away. And so all through chiropractic college, you know, I just really didn't concentrate on palpation except to pass the test and to be able to find my contact points in the neck. 
And I, I regret that. Similarly to the thermography, even though that was something I did want, I felt crippled. I feel crippled by that. Now, I'm doing a lot better than I used to, um, partly because of Dr. Addington, who um, was taught uh, gelée motion palpation by Dr. Gelée himself. And he was of the opinion, and I hate it when people say 100%, but he was of the opinion that um, if you took into account the biomechanics of the upper cervical spine that Dr. Blair found, discovered, described, and you applied that to gelée motion palpation, that he could uh, get a listing. Now, he wouldn't have angles. He wouldn't have things like that necessarily. But he could, 100% of the time, was his opinion, come up with a correct listing. Um, and then there's Dr. Harkins, who has, because of his own neck, developed a palpatory system looking for taut and tender fibers, is what he calls them, and um, correlating those to uh, Blair listings and misalignments. And evidently, according to himself, um, very accurate. And I would love to have both of those guys' skills just implanted direct into my brain because I'm not sure I'm ever going to have enough time to really, I mean, those are time-intensive developed skills. Maybe Dr. Harkin's a little less than than the motion palpation. I'm not sure. But um, I would love to have those skills. And I do a lot more palpation now, partly because I'm doing challenge and pressure tests, which, boy, have I got my stomach all knotted up about. But um, because I'm doing those, I am doing palpation. And now I'm paying more attention to what, not just if I push on something, what does the rest of the body do? But if I'm feeling on something, what does it feel like to me? What does it feel like to the patient? Yeah. You know, do they jump? Um, do I feel like something is swollen? Or uh, and how does that relate to their particular bony anatomy that we saw on the cone beam CT scan or the x-rays? So those are just my my thoughts on palpation. It's important. It can be part of the uh, pattern analysis that you can use. It can be part of your, your daily checks. Um, and depending on the patient may or may not be more important than some of the other things we do. Here's an interesting thing to just to illustrate that point, not so much for palpation, but Dr. Addington would tell this story. He told two stories that were very similar. One, when Dr. Blair was still alive, um, the uh, pattern thermography was he had a patient not doing any better, pattern not changing, but the legs had balanced out, legs had balanced out, legs had balanced out. And he wanted both of them to agree. And he took the uh, case to uh, Dr. Blair, and Dr. Blair chastised him. Basically, I don't remember the exact words, and I can't do the accent as well as Dr. Addington did when he told me the story, but it was like, this is really sad, doc. You know, it's like, you should have adjusted this guy a long time ago. So, uh, so that was one story. The other one was um, uh, talking about supine leg checks. And I don't think it was the same patient, but he had a patient that was not doing better. I don't remember what the thermography said, but he had level legs, level legs, level legs on the prone leg check. He finally flipped them over and there was a huge short leg. So it does test things a little bit differently. And they they both are useful tools to do supine and I will do them sometimes when I have a problem patient. Now, after that, Dr. Addington incorporated them in his daily tests. He would do the thermography, uh, and then he would do a prone leg chest test and a supine leg test. 
um, and and put all of that together, uh, which I don't do. But anyway, so just to bring that to, to, you know, when you're using, when you're choosing which tests to use, whether that's the palpation or the light test or the thermography, and you're taking what the people who've gone before you use, just know that on particular cases, sometimes you're going to use a, co- a different combination that you than you normally do with everybody else. Yeah. And be open and, to that and think about it on those complicated cases. 100%. And maybe start looking at those sooner than later, you know, for the sake yeah. of that patient that Dr. Blair was you know, chastising Dr. Addington about it. It's like, right. you know, we, we tell people these things like holding is healing and healing takes time. And, you're, you know, there's these little subtle signs that your pattern is changing, but sometimes maybe we're just not getting all the right information. And there's no harm in, you know, sooner than later, gathering some additional information that is relevant to upper cervical, because these other techniques like the orthogonal techniques use a supine leg check analysis very reliably. They use a standing. Mm-hmm. A lot of them use a weight-bearing postural assessment, which mm-hmm. is very reliable. Scanning palpation, you know, which is something I learned from Dr. Sweat at school, and I took the Atlas Orthogonal Elective. Powerful, you know, because here's the thing. Palpation is the only one that the patient can experience. Mm-hmm. You know, they can't – they don't know what your, you know, thermography says. They can't see their leg check. But if they got a big swollen knot in their neck – you adjust them, set them up and feel it again. And it's not there. They're like, Oh, that feels so much better. Thank you. Like I know something just changed. So I I do think there's something to that, you know, to have that experience for patients. And here's the thing about, you know, any of these tests is you should test them after you adjust. And if they don't improve, then you've got to figure out why they didn't improve so that you can, you know, create that change. Uh, So I wouldn't bite off more than you can chew and start, bringing a whole bunch of new assessments in because it'll make it confusing for you mm-hmm. to understand how to change your outcomes. Um, but start with the basics. Once you've tested in your certified proficient in Blair technique, then maybe you can start to expand on, you know, some of these checks with a palpation, with stress and pressure, whatever else. Um, and, and the supine leg checks, I think there are situations where you just might have to do that. You know, if a patient can't lay prone, if a patient, um, right. you know, has limitations with, their anatomy or what can be achieved. Like sometimes you just got to think on the fly, not like you said, get too wrapped up as a technician, which is like, well, I have to do the prill tests on this person. Okay. Maybe, maybe you do it seated. Maybe you do it, you know, with them supine. Sometimes you just have to adapt and apply the concepts and get the best information you can to make a decision. So speaking of um, stress, stress and pressure tests, challenge tests, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of different ways that folks talk about this, but when this is what we're talking about, um, and this is like the one that chiropractors don't like to admit that they rely heavily on, but I think a lot more people would lean on this indicator more than some of the others because it's because of whatever reason. So, so this is a situation where you've got, you know, let's say um, a short leg and you start challenging or poking on the vertebra, either in the direction of correction, the direction of misalignment, you are stressing it or you are pressuring it back into alignment and seeing a physiological change in that. So let's say someone's, you suspect someone's got an ASR atlas and they've got a short leg. You go up and gently with an A to P, S to I, lateral to medial direction, poke that atlas and then go back and look at the legs and see them balance. You're thinking, hey, if I do this adjustment that I just simulated, that's going to create a positive physiological change. So I think a lot of folks are using stress and pressure tests as as almost their main indicator, or at least the thing that 
tips them over the edge to feel confident in making an adjustment. So mm-hmm. I, I, as far as I can tell, and this is just, I've looked for this kind of, I don't even think there is any shred of scientific evidence that this phenomenon is even a thing as far as anything that's been studied. So I think we're getting into the sort of anecdotal observational side of things right now. Um, if somebody's aware of some science that does kind of illustrate the mechanoreceptive reflex mechanism with that, I'm all ears. But that being said, if, if someone's going to ask, well, is there a study that supports stress and pressure testing? If there is, I've never seen it. I've never heard anyone cite it and I have no idea how to even find it. So that being said, go ahead into uh, your thoughts on the challenge test. Oh yeah. I hate, I have a love hate relationship with the challenge test. So, um, and here's my thought. Well, basically, I mean, it's not, uh, it's obviously not only Blair doctors who are doing it right. I mean, um, a lot of other techniques are, are based on it. In fact, uh, Jeff Hanna came up with the name of like the granddaddy of the techniques. I don't remember what it is off the top of my head. Um, but um, the, uh, you know, TRT, uh, you know, there's just other techniques, full spine techniques that use this or something similar. Uh, activator methods. The, uh, activator, yeah. right. DNFT so they, is probably the one that was the predecessor to all those direct no yeah no there was another one uh back in bj's day and Mm. uh, i don't remember the the name of it off the top of my head i thought that was pretty cool when he came up with it and said oh yeah that's what i'm doing cool Um, but um you know bj blasted it you know but uh yeah so i mean it makes sense there's obviously some kind something going on I mean, assume, unless you're totally fooling yourself, which I have tested and retested this, but if I go up and I touch somebody's atlas and their legs change, that means something. Now, how you interpret that, what does that mean? That's something else. And how hard you push. I mean, just think about it. Just because I go up and I touch uh, the right transverse process of C1 and the legs level out, does that mean that the right atlanto-occipital joint is misaligned, the left atlanto-occipital joint. How about the, the atlanto-dental joint? How about the atlanto-axial joints? Um, what about the tissues on top of that transverse process? Maybe it was on something in the muscle or something else like that. So all those things go through my mind when I'm doing this these tests. And one of the things that has helped, oh, and here's what I also do, and I've been testing this for a while, Patient comes in, I haven't done the imaging yet. I'll do the leg test. And if I have time, you know, we'll do the thermography, I do a posture analysis, and we do the leg test. And if I have time, I'll I'll do some challenges because I just want to see, I want to test myself. Okay, so I got a what I'm pretty convinced is an AS C1 ASR on this based on my rather developed, I've never seen anybody who does it as complex as I do, and I'm always changing things. On my very light but complex analysis, ASR, how often am I right when I start looking at the CT scans? About 50% of the time. 50 stinking percent. So what does that mean when I've got a patient laying down who's already been a patient and I'm, I'm feeling there? And I know what their misalignments are. And so I can go in and just double check those with a pressure test. I'm fairly confident that it's probably right because I'm coming in at the angle that I know I'm seeing on the on the uh, uh, on the X-rays or the imaging. 
but could I be adjusted? Could it be causing me to adjust too often or, or what? So, and I definitely think that's true. And we were talking before we got started, uh, something that Dr. Addington and I, and he probably came up with it. I don't really remember where this originated, but if we're adjusting people to get their legs straight, which is not really our primary goal, but if you're using the leg test as your primary test, which is what I admitted to in practice, subconsciously doing, um, maybe not always subconsciously. If we are adjusting people to get their legs straight, could we be actually not finding the primary misalignment, but finding secondary misalignments and getting their legs straight, but still as secondary to something else? I'm not sure I'm, I'm saying that very well, but let's just, let's put it bold. Am I creating equal and opposite subluxations or a series of subluxations that centers out the postural muscles so that the legs are level. That's not really what I want to be doing. Yeah, I think I think what you're asking is, am I am I stimulating another compensation that, exactly. a, that appears to level. introduce balance, but is actually a deeper layer of imbalance? Right. Now, I don't think that is true most of the time, but I think that has been true some of the time. And um, I mean, we used to. Dr. Addington and I used to joke about somebody having two short legs, you know? Yeah. It's like, okay. It doesn't really make sense on one hand, but when you look deeper at what we're really trying to do, okay. Yeah. That could be a true statement. Um, and so that's, that gets to be the problem with the challenge tests. Um, they mean something. They can be very useful. How much weight do you give them? Um, if I was out, in the boonies on a vacation and I really wanted to adjust somebody didn't have thermography, didn't have imaging. Could I help a lot of people with just a leg test and, and uh, challenge tests? Absolutely. But so could any chiropractor. And, and it's always about percentage. You do the best you can with the tools you have and understanding the skill set that you have. Always attempt to do your best. So when I've got better tools when I'm in my own office and I've got the best tools and I really need to strive to learn how to use those tools to the best of my ability and not be bound by them. Think outside the box because every patient is going to be a little bit different. Um, but when you've got a problem patient, you know, learn from it and see if you can figure out where you're going wrong or is it just that they're a mess, which is also sometimes true. Yeah. And and there's variations in anatomy. You know, we know that looking at spines all day long, there's variations in neurology, right? So, you know, when we are applying some of these concepts, there are certain assumptions that underlie all of our quote normal ranges, you know, for, for any of these tests, right? We have to have a normal range to compare something to so that we can appreciate an abnormal. But a lot of times we have to make certain assumptions to establish that normal range. And some people just don't play by the rules, you know, and some people have you know, very, very complicated neurophysiology. Some folks that have in instability, some folks that are metabolically a dumpster fire and their whole body is inflamed and just mm -hmm. very sensitive to any type of stimulus. Some people are centrally sensitized because of their chronic pain and they are exaggerating their, their motor outputs to otherwise, you know, not significant stimuli, right? So there's, there's a lot of things that 
you know, can influence what, what you see when you apply any test. Um, and back to the point about being a doctor, that that's where you've got to make decisions, you know, and live with your decisions, test these things afterwards. And over time, you'll learn the pattern for the patient, you know, and this, it doesn't, I don't think it, it shouldn't take, I don't know, you can weigh in on this, but with each patient, you, you can figure out, you know, what the key main indicators are in a relatively reasonable amount of time. It's not going to take you six to nine months to figure out if someone's out with it's a short leg or, or, or a scan. You're going to get that within the first couple adjustments. If you do the first adjustment right and you see, you know, good changes, there you go. You know what to look for, you know, and you have a you have a really great initial, you know, data set to, to monitor. Now, things come into play later. And, and if you get into Jeff's thermography course, you'll learn about, you know, what if another pattern emerges? You know, what if you were doing good in one area and all of a sudden something else is coming up? What if a C2 pattern all of a sudden shows up or some other lower mm-hmm. spinal pattern emerges? So there's nuances to it. But I think you can always and should always keep in the front of your mind basic neurophysiological rationale, right? We, we understand the postural mechanisms that associate head neck positioning with short legs, Right. So we can understand that science. We can understand those mechanisms. We can keep that in mind. We understand the research related to paraspinal thermography, the implications on the sympathetic nervous system when you see a big difference side to side. And we can then interpret that patient encounter in light of those known mechanisms. That's where I get really frustrated with the stress and pressure test because I feel like I don't have a, a foundational you know, concept to lean on to filter this information through. Um, and, and I've met chiropractors because it's basically a muscle test, right? These AK docs, they'll do the muscle testing too, right? Point in different directions, tug on an arm, do, you know, with the arm fossa test, you can uh, do it with uh, any muscle in the body. And, and I've had folks show that stuff off, you know, chiropractors love to show off their tricks. Mm-hmm. And then I've had people show off their mental challenges, Right. Which is watch this. I can just think about the listing and the Uh legs go short Uh or the legs balance. So then this gets into the realm of like, okay, am I just seeing what I want to see because I've made up my mind that this patient needs adjusted. Now I'm hunting for a reason to adjust them. That, that to me is, is not good territory for good clinical decision-making. If you're getting into that, like, let me just like find a way to see what I want to see kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I I do appreciate, you know, the the objectivity of some of this stuff and having known mechanisms to hold yourself accountable to. Otherwise you're just going to do whatever you want to do. And that might not be in the best interest of the patient. So I, I would be careful with stress and pressure testing because like you said, some folks I've had people pressure test me, some that barely touched me, other ones that jammed, jammed me and made me wince and my whole spine moved. It's like, yeah, they found a lumbar subluxation. They pushed so hard. You know what? You know, it's just like, I, I I don't know. I have a hard time with that personally, especially in light of all the cool things we can actually measure standing postural assessment. I mean, visually or with hip calipers or whatever, do that, you know, do range of motion, do static emotion palpation, have them sit there and go through cervical spine ranges of motion. Um, there, there's all these cool, you know, devices like the flags for proprioception and stuff. Like I've been lately measuring folks control of their head and neck movements, pre and post adjustment using the cervical relocation test. It's really cool to see an immediate improvement in their proprioceptive head and neck control after an Mm -hmm. adjustment. To me, Mm -hmm. that feels a lot more gratifying 
then poking around and seeing changes. So I think there's some really cool stuff that the patient can experience and, um, and is, is, I don't know, a little bit closer to our concepts, but in, you know, keep these tools in the back of your, your back pocket too, and play around with them and make observations. And, and, you know, there, there's again, clinical utility, whether there's scientific validity, you know, that's another story. And, uh, hopefully someone can, you know, can clue me in on the science and I can be more confident with it, but. I think uh, it's interesting because earlier you, you talked about you liked the thermography because it's a local test. The challenges are certainly a local test. It's just how do you interpret your, and you're getting a result, but how do you interpret that result and how can you refine, refine that? And I think, um, you know, I got into it like so many of our listeners, I'm sure did you're in school and you don't have the tools. Yeah. Right? You want to do something effective and you can't do a full Blair adjustment because you don't have the angles, but could you at least come up with a somewhat close listing? And so you, you've got these tools in your handbag, you got this leg test, you got the challenge test, um, you know, the posture, whatever. And so the challenge test kind of gives you some confidence because it works often enough to whet your appetite and start, you start relying on it. And I can see that in my practice for sure. It's funny you mentioned that. I've told this story on the podcast before, but that's actually how I started dabbling with upper cervical in outpatient clinic in school. Was I was taking um, the CCEP, so the the extremity, you know, the extremity modules, you know, basically the certified chiropractic extremity practitioner or whatever. And one of their modules was what they call global mechanical assessment. So it was a series of muscle tests that would sort of lead you in how to, you know, go about adjusting. There was this, there was priorities and a sequence to it and their test for upper cervical was to laterally flex the head and then do the muscle tests. If they blow out, then you need to adjust their upper cervical spine on that side. And, and me being in school thinking like lateral flexion, why are they choosing that for the upper cervical spine? That doesn't make any <laughs> sense. Right. And so, you know, instead of doing that, because I was using this assessment on my patients in the outpatient clinic, I was also just um, just curious about because they, they made the, you know, the occasional comment that like, well, you can just toggle them, you know, if you don't want to do a rotary or whatever. And I'm like, oh, OK, let's bring back toggle. So I had these patients in an outpatient clinic and I would do my whole assessment, come up with the five or six segments that needed to be adjusted based on that assessment. And then if there was an upper cervical indication, I would just pressure test it. Like instead of the lateral flexion, just right or left. And then just do a straight down toggle on the, you know, little table with the standard head drop. It wasn't like a mm -hmm. toggle table, just mm -hmm. straight toggle from right to left, right? Flip them over on their back, have them rest for five minutes, recheck my tests, everything cleared out. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, this isn't even good upper cervical work. And look at this. Like yeah. it was amazing. And and it screwed me up because there was a couple things it was like, I don't understand upper cervical biomechanics as well as I thought I did. And I don't think they do either. The other thing was, okay, so I just did one adjustment that cleared out an indicator for six segments I was going to adjust, including extremities. What am I supposed to do with that information? Right. So that's why I, I took the Blair elective to understand biomechanics a little better. And you know, the rest is history. Uh, but so to get to your point, Yes, I've been there. And, and that was like a, you know, that was one of the things that tripped me up was playing with that particular indicator and using it and then testing other indicators against it. And so I think there is clinical utility there. And again, there's a lot of folks that it feels like 
it feels like the last, the last little bit of confidence that you need, which I think is really important. If you're going to adjust somebody, be confident that you're doing the right thing. And if a little bit of a challenge test to just verify, you know, what you've already checked in a couple different ways, and that just, you know, puts you over the top and builds a high level of confidence that yes, this person needs an ARSC2 right now. Boom, go for it. You know, and, and if that's what it takes, then I have no problem. Um, would I substitute thermography for a challenge test? I don't think that's wise. Would I substitute a leg check for a challenge test? Yeah, you have to have a leg check to do the challenge test. Um, but, you know, to your point, yeah, there's there's times where these things come in handy. And, and even if we can't, you know, po- point a randomized control trial in, in front of somebody, um, at the end of the day, if you help the patient, that's the thing that matters the most. Uh, so, but these are questions that come up in, in the, uh, the, the questions that we started with actually directly asked about what about challenge tests and stress and pressure yeah. tests. Right. So ask 10 Blair chiropractors, you're going to get 10 opinions about it, yeah. but or I more. do, or more, but I do think that people do those things for a reason because they don't feel hundred percent confident in the other indicators, right? Because if you, if you felt hundred percent confident in your thermography and your leg checks, you wouldn't do a challenge test. Right. And so that means that there's still, you know, maybe some doubt that I don't have all the information I need to make the informed decision. And so, so for me, I think there's an indication that maybe you want to brush up on your thermography. You maybe want to dial that in a little bit more, build your, build your confidence with that. Mm -hmm. Maybe you want to be a little more conscientious with how you're doing your leg checks and just make sure you're not introducing variables with just even basic prone leg checks. And tighten that up a little bit, you know, rather than add another variable, you know, let's make sure that with the ones that are foundational, we've really tightened up um, because taking taking more variables to account for the ones over here doesn't really improve the picture. Um, it, it's it's kind of like a short term fix for for the um, long term problem, which is like I need to build my confidence in these other areas. Right. It's interesting. Um Going back to doing the leg test and the mental challenges. So I've realized that when I walk up to a patient's feet, I have to put my brain in neutral because I can influence. I mean, I could put, I mean, I, and I've done this on purpose where I've sat there with their legs just slightly bent, you know, uh, my hands in front of their ankles and I've looked down make sure they're, you know, all the, you know, foot flare, you know, whatever is everything is good. And thought, okay, the right leg is short, and the right leg moves short, and then I think, okay, now they're level, and then and I could swear that I'm not moving my hands. Now I must be subtly influencing it somehow, unless there is something metaphysical going on. But I have no way of measuring that. But I can I can go back and forth and make a person's legs long or short based on what I'm thinking I'm going to see, and so that tells me that when I walk up to somebody and I see a short leg, I had better be making sure that. I really am putting my brain almost in neutral is how I describe it to run those tests that I'm not influencing it because I can watch. I can just physically watch their legs change short, long, short, long, just based on how I'm thinking. And I'm sure, I'm sure there's something with my hands that I'm I'm communicating. I'm not ready to say it's woo woo metaphysical stuff, but I've, I've demonstrated it to myself that I have to be careful with how I'm approaching the patient to get a good leg test. So, you know, it doesn't work that way is thermography. Cause how no. many times I've done a post scan going straight line, straight line, straight line. And it wasn't, you know, no. so no matter how much you wish for it it, it, it will make a, make a man out of you if you're not getting those changes. 
You know, thinking but, about asymmetry, we talk a lot about that with uh, with the bony anatomy because that's really what we're mostly interested in. But we know then, of course, that the muscles are attached to the bone, so there's going to be some muscle asymmetry. Well, could there be um, blood vessel asymmetry? Could somebody have a normal pattern just because the blood vessels are a little bit larger on one side versus the other? Or is the body always going to, even if it's larger, it is always going to be regulating it down so that, but then maybe it's, it's emitting more heat in one area and less heat in another area to equal out what's going on. So these are the things that go through my mind now that I've been doing it for a while. It's like, okay, is, is this just this person's normal pattern? Is there such a thing as normal pattern? I'm sure they studied it. Well, I just don't know. But anyway, that was an, another thought that I just uh, throw out there to confuse everybody and make people more insecure. No, you know what? It, it, it's it's worth mentioning because it, that goes back to the assumptions. And, and with upper cervical, there's no separating its technical develops from the philosophical developments of the time as well. Mm-hmm. Right? right. So from a from a philosophical perspective, it was mental impulse, you know, it wasn't a nerve impulse. It wasn't blood flow. You know, we're talking about, you know, that is the, we're getting into the metaphysical. And now we are talking about like the intention was to measure the communication of the non-physical substance of man, right? We're trying to like quantify this to show that Mm -hmm. we improved the flow of it. So those ideas were kind of developed concurrently. And that was really the goal was to test for that. You know, they weren't trying to test for blood flow. And right. you could you could take a picture of a diabetic's foot and see decreased blood flow. And that doesn't mean that it's a mental impulse problem. Right. right? And some people could probably make that argument. But, but so when we have the physiology and we have the philosophy, I think there's sometimes folks lean one way or the other. And, and that becomes their their predominant mental model for understanding this stuff. And you've got to kind of be aware of that for yourself. I think I've had it both ways at different times in practice. And I'm, I'm definitely kind of swinging in a direction um, a little bit more on the scientific model side of things. And I'm, I'm leaning a little bit heavier into what things can I, you know, really confidently ascribe to a known physiological mechanism. Right. right? Because and I don't think there's any problem with philosophy, but just keeping them all in their context and not saying because you saw a straight line on the thermography scan. You know, I've had pretests on patients that were definitely subluxated that looked pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. And their post scan looked pretty, pretty darn wonky, mm-hmm. but it was a physiological change, you know, that needed to snap them out of that dormant, you know, physiological state they were in. And so right. there, there's lessons to learn from all this stuff. And it is. It is interesting because I, I practiced for, uh, I've been in practice for six years. I'd say the first half of it with a lot of fear about doing the wrong thing and about making the wrong decision and the information I didn't have that I didn't know. And and it, it wasn't a very productive way to practice. I mean, it just, when I started, quote, breaking the rules a little bit, you find out that it's, you know, that all hell is not going to break loose if you do a supine leg check instead of a prone one. Right. There are no Blair police that are going to slap you on the wrist, you know, for right. not doing it like whoever did it. These lessons and the wisdom that comes from the folks that have been doing it for years, those are important things to to pay attention to and observe. And I think that, you know, doing it with a proactive and confident and 
um, peaceful, for lack of a better word, approach is going to get you better results than doing it with this frantic, anxious, negative approach, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes the way a lot of people practice when they have these questions, they're just, they're afraid. I don't want to adjust them. I don't want to over adjust them. I don't want to under adjust them. You know, was I on the wrong, you know, some of that stuff can really wig you out. And I've gone through periods like that where it was, it was really stressful to check patients. And I'm like, what am I doing? You know, this is not the point. Um, The other end of that spectrum is to become too complacent and lackadaisical. So don't do that either. But again, you know, three little pigs here, find, find the happy medium where you can have confidence in your assessments. You are checking them again afterward, which I want to get a couple thoughts from you on this. Um, And then you manage patients over time with this information and don't be, I don't know, maybe this is not the official Blair technique stance, but don't be afraid to look outside of, you know, the technician part of it that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And just introduce new ideas, you know, intro- to mm-hmm. your thinking, to your processing, to your clinical decision making. Put those in your initial exam and then monitor them over time. Don't reinvent the technique, but you can start right away looking at other other indicators and, and just weighing their merit in the Blair system of analysis and seeing uh, where they might fit in. Don't don't be afraid to do that. I was afraid to do that. And that's what I'm trying to get across is I thought, how dare I? You know, I haven't. Mm-hmm been doing it for how long i haven't done this certification that thing and that was a self-limiting belief that i don't think any of you blair doctors imposed on me that was my own that was my own stinking thinking that was you know operating from a place of fear rather than a place of you know curiosity and interest yeah you know that blair started doing his and, and I'm not advocating we do this, but he started doing research, you know, only a few years out of school. And um, and yet he was involved in research in school. So he wasn't like just coming out of it from left field, but um, he was curious. And he, and he had patients that weren't getting the results he thought. And, and that's what drives me and you and so many people to improve and to look at other things. I mean, that's why I'm interested in, in, uh, in the neurology and, and some of the other tests that are being done now with, with functional neurology tests and things like that. It's like, well, that's, you know, maybe it's not an indicator for everybody. Maybe it is a good indicator for everybody, but maybe just some of my problem patients, you know, this would benefit from, I finally found a, somebody who's got um, a functional neurology diplomat, you know, within 150 miles of, of Lubbock, uh, one guy, that uh, I finally sent one patient to, and I don't know if she's gone yet, but it was like, oh, good. I'd love to have that in my office. I'd love to be able to do more of it myself. But until I'm good at it, there's a guy I can send people to because I'm not getting the results I want. This person's staying in alignment. All my clinical indicators are good. We only got a little bit of results or no results or whatever. Um, one other thing I want to talk about um, just briefly is Dr. Blair's respect for the adjustment. So, and that kind of comes into this because you can have fear, but you need to, uh, it's better to operate without the fear, but in a, in a position of conviction. So it's scary to tell patients that are coming in and you've got some clinical indicators that they need to be adjusted, that you think it's better for them to not be adjusted. You have to be able to explain that without them feeling like you're just brushing them off. Um, and some people need more explanation than others. Some people need the same things repeated to them over and over and over again, which drives me nuts. That's not my strong point. Um, but he 
Oh, I already told you that he would would not adjust somebody if they came in and they were in pattern until they had demonstrated they were in pattern twice within his limitations. Um, he also, I was talking to um, uh, Perry Rush, finally met him after hearing about him, I want to say my whole life, my whole chiropractic life. Finally met him uh, a few months ago and we were texting the other day. And um, Dr. Blair did not want him. So he taught, for those who don't know, he taught the Blair elective at Sherman College for years and years and years, almost from the beginning of when it was established or shortly thereafter. Um, and they, the, the people who started it, and there was another college, the ADO college that um, uh, Reggie Gold started, they actively pursued him to teach because they wanted Blair on the campus. But Dr. Blair did not want him to teach the Blair adjustment to the students. Back in the beginning, Dr. Blair wouldn't let you take the adjustment courses from him until you had submitted x-rays showing the correct analysis that you, that you knew how to take the x-rays and you knew how to analyze the, correct, the x-rays correctly before he would show you how to adjust them. Can you imagine doing that to patients? All right, I'm going to take all these x-rays. I don't know what to do with them, but uh, we're going to adjust you normal. But I'm going to take these x-rays so that I can learn how to adjust you right. But um, he, uh, yeah, so Dr. Rush never taught, he taught some variations, some limitations that, that he kind of tested out that seemed to work well, but never as well for every patient as, as a full toggle torque, Blair toggle torque. But it, it was that kind of respect that Blair had for the adjustment. He said, you're, if you do my adjustment, you're going to move that bone. So you better be know what you're doing and do it right. And so that comes back to these clinical, not just the x-ray analysis, but the clinical indicators. We, I think, for whatever reason, don't have as much respect for the adjustment as some of the guys that we should be looking up to or that we do look up to did. Yeah, it's interesting how his particular generation of chiropractors um, was there's a lot of technique development that happened during that era because of that reason. And folks were, they were trained by BJ. They, they came up in sort of the like prime time of, of, you know, chiropractic research at Palmer. And these guys were very well trained in adjusting much better than I'd imagine what chiropractic students are now. And uh, a lot of the technical advancements and developments were to get a better adjustment that lasted longer, that held better, that was, you know, more applicable to the wider ranges of cases, how to make it that much more individualized. Like these guys, the, the gross sticks and the whole family tree from there, Blair, the other full spine techniques that developed around the time too. I mean, there was a lot of emphasis on better adjusting, you mm-hmm. know, in general. And there was a, there was a respect for the adjustment. And, and I don't know that it's, I don't know that it's just a kind of just the way things go. Like what, what was once, cherished becomes like commonplace and then you start to lose a little bit of that um you know conviction to use your word i don't know but you're right i think when you approach when you approach that interaction where you need to adjust the patient it's it's that's the thing you know that's the thing they're there for is for that change to be made and for that to to catapult them to a higher level of health and uh, i think that's you hear people talk about doing the same technique 
but getting better results because of their focus and their intention and their respect for the adjustment or what they're doing. And I don't know what to think of that, you know, because on one hand, I get it, you know, and I can see, I can see how that would be the case and whether that's just the patient has more confidence in the doctor, the doctor has more confidence and control of what they're doing, whether that's, I don't know. I don't know what that is. Um, but I think there is something to it and, and all the more reason to build yourself up in that, you know, and all the more reason to, to, again, with these, with these analysis procedures, they're all supposed to build, build the case for the adjustment. That's the thing that matters, you know, not, not diddling around with a bunch of tests. I mean, you can do that all day and you can have a million things to check just to show off all the things you can check. But at the end of the day, like the point is to make a solid case that the patient needs to be adjusted. And then you have to check this stuff afterwards to know that you actually did adjust them, uh, which is a little bit of a different approach than, than a lot of full spine. Uh, so speaking of post-checking, and we don't have to talk about all the things, but how do you post thermography check? I'm interested in this. Do you post, well, let me ask the, let me ask the, the actual question. Do you, do you post scan them before or after they rest? Good. After. So, um, so Dr. Muncie taught that the best post check is the next checkup. And if he adjusted somebody, he would, you know, and if they were a once a month patient, but he adjusted them, he would not wait a month. He would have them come in within about a week to recheck. So that's really, that really molded my thinking in my practice. Um, there have been times when I've post-checked on the same day. Um, and for most of my career, I've post-checked after the first adjustment on the same day, right away after, well, right after they rest. I figure you give them some time. You have to have the neck reacclimatized, of course. But um, would I, what does that mean? If I saw that the leg was still short or the pattern was there, would I adjust them? No. So did it have any clinical weight to it as far as what I was going to do? I was still going to wait. Um, so now what we do is um, we do run the graph, the thermography again. I don't recheck the legs after the first adjustment, but we do rerun the thermography. Any subsequent adjustments, it's the next check. I don't, I don't do the, I don't do the thermography. I don't do the leg test. I know Jeff Hanna is very, very strong. A man, you must do this, but it wasn't how I was raised, so to speak. Um, and I can see that there could be some good reasons for doing that, but is it going to affect my clinical decision making? No. Uh, in fact, people people can have. I mean, BJ taught, as far as I can remember. And I don't know that I say this word right, but the cicatrical or cicatrical, yeah. uh, the the word that means scar tissue, subluxation, where the pattern doesn't even change. Now, obviously, for most people, it does, right? Or at least that's what you want to see. But in some cases, it doesn't change for days, weeks, maybe longer. So why would I think that I should get a change, especially with as subtle as what the Blair adjustment is, a big autonomic change right after the first adjustment on every single patient? Well, I don't. Um, and if they come in the next visit and their legs are level, but the graph is patterned, I'm going to stay off of them. And usually my, um, 
usually that has been the right decision as far as I can tell with hindsight. So that's kind of how that's kind of how we operate currently. Uh, every once in a while, I'll tweak things and we'll start doing things a little bit differently. But um, so I do post check after the first adjustment, but only the thermography and only after they've rested and we rest them 40 minutes. Um, and then any subsequent adjustments, I really don't do any post check unless I'm really wondering is there's, hey, is, is C5 out? You know, okay, well, C1 is definitely out. Let's adjust that. And just for a point of reference, I'm going to recheck their legs and run a thermography again afterwards. So in difficult cases, yes, sometimes I do post-check. What I do with that information usually does not end up in another adjustment on the same day, but it's there to kind of give me some information on what I'm going to be looking for on the next checkup, the real post-check in my mind. That's interesting. I I know like if you're a NUCA doc, you adjust post-X-ray, readjust, post-X-ray. So there is a lot of that working it down kind of thing, they would say, which is if our indicator isn't improving, that means we didn't do our job. You know, so it's interesting to hear you say that. And uh, I've, I've heard a lot of folks say that same thing, which is the next visit is the checkup. But then again, variables, it's like, oh, I, I don't know that I would feel, I don't know if I'd feel confident in that. I like to post-check right after I adjust them. Like I've always thought, if someone goes and lays on a pillow for 40 minutes, then I scan their neck again. Of course, it's going to look more even. They just heated up that pillow. This is what's crazy about these people that get obsessed with showing their scans off. It's like, great. You know, I would lay on my neck for an hour. Of course, it's going to look different than when I didn't lay on my neck for an hour. So I let them rest on the table for five minutes or so, get them up immediately post-scan, just looking for a change, quick leg check, just see if there's a change. And if it's changed, good. And I, I don't know. I mean, this is just my... Just my thinking. I I can't think of a time where I've readjusted. Maybe maybe once for someone who was out of, from out of town, and it was like, well, I can't just check you next week. I rarely will readjust, but I definitely don't like the feeling of not knowing what just happened. I just checked all this stuff before we adjusted, mm-hmm. and now I'm just going to assume I did the right thing, and then hopefully next time it shows that I did. I. That makes me a little uncomfortable. So it's interesting to hear you say that, but and, well, and it, kind of, I, it, it leads to another question mm-hmm. that is, and this is maybe a little bit of the, like not antagonistic to any technique in general, but the question is like, if, if our indicators for when to intervene aren't changing quickly after we intervene, are those the right indicators? You know, should we see a change? Because the assumption is we made a biomechanical and neuro, neurophysiological change, not that we fixed everything. Um, and this is one of the critiques that the ortho people have of Blair docs is like, you guys don't take post x-rays, so you don't know if they're in alignment or not. And we say, well, the scan and the leg checks show us that we made a change. But if they go back and say, well, you don't even do that after your adjustment, then it does kind of become a little bit of a flimsy foundation for understanding when to intervene and and you know, however we rationalize it, it, it does make, that's my first question is like, if I was listening to this with a critical ear, that would be my thought. It's like, well, why bother checking that stuff in the first place? You know, if you're not going to check it afterwards and say that it doesn't matter if it changes, well, then what's the point? So obviously we do check it afterwards. It's just that how long do you, how long do you wait before you check it afterwards? That's really the the issue. So of yeah. course I'm checking it afterwards. It's just that the, the best check is the next office visit. I mean, every single, as far as I know, every single chiropractic technique out there levels legs. 
Yeah. For a short period of time. So you can recheck. I mean, if I adjusted your lumbars, your pelvis, I could recheck you right afterwards. Legs are level. Great. So what I found was that there was a time where I would do all the post checks right after an adjustment. And, and I played around with sometimes it was right after the adjustment. Sometimes it was right after the checkup. After a while, I just realized I was just spinning my wheels because the legs were always level. And the graph, whether it was changed or not, didn't change what I was going to do. So okay. I found, oh, here I am spending all this time, my time, patient's time. And it's not actually helping my clinical decision-making process. So let's just wait, you know, a day or more or whatever. Or if it's patient from out of town, sometimes later the same day. Uh, let's give it some time, usually a couple hours at least, and recheck. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of went through the same thing because I was insecure if I was making a change. And I just found that maybe I'm an awesome adjuster, but there was always a change you know, yeah. that soon afterwards. Now, was there a change the next time? I mean, by the time they came in? Well, yeah, vast majority do not need another adjustment on their first checkup. Um, so, I mean, I, like I said at the beginning, 50% of my patients hold their first adjustment for the first 16 weeks. Well, that means 50% don't, but does that mean they get adjusted on the next visit? By the vast majority who need another adjustment in the first 16 weeks are not getting adjusted again within the first few. Uh, And that's that's not just based on a decision I made regardless of the clinical indicators. That's based on the clinical indicators. The the critique I have for the orthogonal technique, and, and there's a lot of smarter doctors than I who are orthogonal doctors who retake the post, you know, do the post x-ray is that the most important part of a cell, if we use uh, the four parts of a subluxation mopey, right? misalignment, occlusion, pressure, uh, interference, what's the most important part? It's interference, right? If there's no interference, there is no health problems. seems to me, at least that's what we've been taught. That's what I believe. Um, and if there is no I, then the MONP will probably clear themselves out over time. So testing for the M to determine whether your adjustment was effective seems like the wrong end of the stick. Why not check the I, the interference? And we interpret our clinical indicators, rightly or wrongly, we think rightly, as being the indicators for the I. So it makes more sense to me to be doing what we're doing than to hammering the neck back into place. And there's other, you know, arguments for, you know, if I do do a post x-ray, which I'm not opposed to, I think is a cool idea. Am I going to see the lot, everything lined back up again? Well, Dr. Muncy taught no. I think Dr. Blair taught no as well. It's what we're doing is we're unlocking it and then allowing the body to realign it. So if we can get rid of the I, the body can take care of the MOP over time. And for some people, it's going to be quick. Some people, it might be right away. Other people, it could be years before it goes back. So yeah. anyway, uh, just things you brought up that crossed my mind that had nothing no, to do good. with this doctor's question. But. but but it does because at the heart of it is the question about, am I doing the right thing? Right. That's right. what he's asking. Am I doing the right thing mm-hmm. for these people that are coming to me for help? And that involves all of these discussions, right? Your values, your chiropractic values, the assumptions that you're okay with and the ones that you're not, you know, because some people 
will take issue with the assumption that the MONP will sort themselves out and, and will say, well, I've got plenty of reasons why that's not the case. And so all of us do have to like at some point, I don't want to say compromise, but we do need to pick our battles. You know, we do mm-hmm. need to like settle into what is achievable and what we can do and not become that person that is so, I don't want to say nihilistic about it, that you just think there's no point in anything. Um, right. Because you can get you can get down that road if you keep, you know, spinning on this stuff for too long. Uh, but at the end of the day, the question of, am I doing the right thing for these people? You can only answer that for yourself. And techniques are not chiropractic techniques, whether it's Blair or Atlas Orthogonal or anything else, they are not a substitute for your responsibility to your patient. Like you can't just defer to a technique and say, well, I was just trained to do it this way. And if they, you know, that's not a, that's not your scapegoat, I guess is the word I'm looking for. So if you don't feel settled or you don't feel confident in some of the assumptions that maybe a technique makes, or maybe some of the, um, you know, shortcomings of a system of analysis, like you were just referring to with the orthogonal post X-ray approach, that's something that you have to handle, you know, that you have to address for yourself so that you can show up every day to work and feel confident that you're taking good care of these people and, and understanding the thing that you talked about a while back, which is that the, 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 the truth is different than our perspective, right? Like there, we are seeing a, a part of the whole, you know, and, and no matter which technique you practice, they all have their merits. They all have their mm-hmm. shortcomings. Absolutely. Right? And, th- and that is something that we just, we can't work around because we as chiropractors are people too. And we are doing our best clinically, you know, to care for people. But even the research that happens in these techniques is clinical research done in doctor's offices, often not reproduced by other doctors. I mean, because we are, you know, we're practicing chiropractors first. Uh, So with all of these questions and considerations, I think it's good to have mentors that have been practicing longer than you because here I am coming up with this thing. And the doctor was like, yeah, I already been through that. And here's my observation, Mm -hmm. right? That's why it's important to have people close to you that, have been down this road doesn't mean you have to just do what they did. You know, you can still be yourself, but learn from that wisdom and, and, and ask the questions, right. And don't be afraid if you're curious or you're not happy with the results that you're seeing, don't be afraid to go out of your way to figure out why, you know, and to fill in those gaps for your people. Um, Because there's, you know, if I was practicing in a, in an oil drilling town somewhere in Texas, Versus Silicon Valley, where there's people sitting at desks for 52 hours a day, you're probably going to see different things in patients, right? So like, we're not even dealing with the same humans. Uh, So that's what's fun about this though, right? I was just telling a patient the other day, I would be so bored if all I did was just give everybody the same once over, you know, can you imagine how intellectually dull that would be? This stuff is fun. And it's, it's, it's interesting to think about there's there, you can research, you can go look at the anatomy, physiology, neurology of all these things. Uh, You can learn from other techniques, you can engage in a program like the diplomate to get really into the nitty gritty details of all the things related to the cranial cervical junction to inform your development as a doctor. And uh, the technique organizations and the groups that are out there are there to help facilitate your development. But at the end of the day, we're each responsible to be good stewards of our own careers and to continue that development and to not blame anybody else for your lack of results, not to explain away your lack of results, you know, but to, but to just continue to grow and to continue to develop Mm -hmm. and keep working on it, you know, and and I'd love to have a separate conversation at some point about 
if you've changed any of your thinking about Dr. Blair's principles of misalignment based on all the CBCTs you've seen up to this point, because I'm really, I'm really curious about the mechanics of some of these adjustments and, and, you know, how we think about them with uh, imaging that is kind of like really opened up a lot of doors for, for different perspectives, but go ahead. Yeah, that's fine. And, and I won't go into that right now, except to say that that's one of the things that keeps me interested in my practice is the mechanics, the biomechanics of how things work. I spend, when I do a cone beam analysis, um, I spend an hour. And now it doesn't take me an hour to come up with the, what I think their primary problem is. But it, but I spend an hour pretty much on almost everyone, which I don't like that I'm spending that much time. But to feel like I'm pretty confident about what's going on, I get, I get, you know, I've, I've got these out and I'm, I'm thinking, okay, this patient's got a steep slope and, uh, you know, what's the, here's the misalignment. What's the best mechanical way? There's so many different things that you can take into account. So it's just intellectually stimulating, which is one of the things that I like about coming to the practice. One other thing I want to say, and this goes back to our original question is how can I know that I'm doing the right thing? One of the strengths of the Blair technique is a new doctor right out of school, having been trained, not not being super, super good adjuster maybe yet because you just always get better, or at least you should always be striving to get better. Maybe not having the absolute best x-ray analysis, but Dr. Blair really broke down these things down into steps that mean that coming out of school, you can be assured that if you follow the rules, don't, don't play with them yet. Doesn't mean you can't play with them, but don't play with them yet. You can get a lot of people well, and you're going to learn on the ones you don't, and that's fine. But um, you can help a lot of people just follow the steps. Just follow the steps that Dr. Blair wrote down that you've been taught by your instructors, and uh, and you can have confidence that you're going to help a lot of people. Don't lose that I that don't have too much confidence, right? Don't think, man, I'm a Going back to what you said, some people just think it's the you know the intention. Well, that's the icing on the top. That's after the foundation of the technique and the theory and the philosophy is to have that that intention because what that does is that helps you focus on that particular patient with everything you know about the technique and the philosophy and everything. If you just come out of school and you're saying my all all that I need is my intention, so you don't have to spend the time mastering those other things. That's crap. I'm sorry, that's just a bad word, but that's that's crap. And that's going to be crap, and you crap could, practice, it, and you're not going to be happy long-term with your results. And I would make the argument that you actually don't have the intention because you're not taking the time. I think the attention, intention is in the technical analysis and in the time you spend. It's not just a good feeling of mental, right. you know, good vibes for your patient. Right. Every, right. every person that comes into your office, just my rant on intention, Every person mm-hmm. that comes in your office does not intend to be sick. They're <laughs> intending to be better. They're thinking about their life being better every moment of every day, and they're not there yet. Yeah. So it takes more than your good vibes to make that change for them. And your intention right. and your effort and your intensity should be included in every part of the way that you take care of them, even when they're not in the office and you're analyzing their CT. That's building up you know, for the moment that you do the adjustment, it, it, there's no substitute for that by just feeling more about it. And, and I think in mm-hmm. some ways that'll actually blind you 
mm-hmm. to your lack of results and will give you excuses to talk yourself into things being, you know, not as bad as they are for your patients because you, you just wish it to be better. So intention is it's important over the table, have the intention to make the change that the patient needs you to make, but that's not the only time where that matters. Um, because I've heard every, every person I've ever met yanking on people's heads with towels, they, they have a good intention, but yeah. it doesn't mean that the application is appropriate. So yeah. anyway, r- rant over. Um, <laughs> awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate these conversations. I hope that folks get a lot out of it just from, it's interesting. I, I like this because you and I have a good rapport with each other. We understand each other, I think. And like, we're at different ends of the practicing spectrum. I've been in practice six or seven years. You've been in practice for more than that. And for the, for the doc that sent these questions in and for anyone else listening who, who wrestles with this type of thinking, you can see that we all do, you know, and we all do in our own ways in our own practices and have it, even having the conversations, we do the same technique. We do the same steps, but we have different ways of thinking and feeling about some of it. And you'll see that that's just the case. So continue to have conversations with doctors that think like you, with doctors that don't think like you, um, and and just continue to develop the thinking, the concepts, the thoughts. You know, you said in the very beginning, I'm just going to share with you my thought patterns with this. You know, the, the, the different things that have been tumbling around in my brain as I've been doing this for a long time and have had successes and failures with patients and good moments and bad moments and learned more and changed things. And, you know, that that is all a part of it. And as much as we would like to have the A plus B equals C formula to spoon feed you and say, okay, only do a prone, not a supine leg check, always rely on thermography, do it seven minutes post adjustment, blah, blah, blah. You could, somebody could give you that formula, but it's, it, it's not complete, you know, without your, without your individual, you know, taste and uh, values and approach to it. So hopefully it helps you to think about where you might need to tighten up some of your skills or develop your skills or do some additional learning in the skills that relate to the technique. And if that's the case, there are resources available at blairtechnique.com. We've got thermography manuals. If you, you could know nothing about thermography to being very good with it. Like I said, a number of hours, Jake Hollowell, CBCT analysis modules are on there too. You could go from not having seen a CBCT to getting good Blair listings and ortho listings and just full assessment of a cervical spine. Check that out, BlairTechnique.com. There's a Blair seminar almost every weekend at this point. It's like we, we do more seminars than any other technique. So there are ways that you can get introduced to these concepts and just continue to ask the conversations and network and have, you know, and have these interactions because it's all really fruitful and it all builds you up. Uh, so visit BlairTechnique.com. There's so much good stuff there. And, um, you know, keep an eye on the other organizations as well. They do their annuals in there. Uh, you know, conferences and stuff, but I feel like Blair's got a leg up and just the entry points to this information. Uh, so I would encourage you to, to, to engage with that. If you're an associate doc, ask your, ask your field doc to buy it for you. Tell them, Hey, I really want to step our game up with thermography. Can you get this module for us? I'll train in it and learn it. And then we'll improve our procedures. Sounds like a proactive, you know, way to get that paid for in my mind, but even if they don't, it's worth the investment. I think the, both of those modules are less than 400 bucks each. And, you know, that's, that's no small thing compared to what it, it will return with having that knowledge. So, well, and most, most seminars are more than that. Plus you've got the travel and everything else. And then you've got it. It's not just a one-off. You've got it forever. You can watch yeah. it and rewatch it and read yeah. it and reread it. So they're definitely worth 
100%. Awesome. Well, for you guys that are going to see us at the Blair Annual, really looking forward to that at the end of the month. Here it is, Labor Day. This may not come out before then, but um, if, you're, if you've not been to a Blair Annual, that's a great chance to get a broad overview of all this stuff. Uh, to get exposure to all these concepts uh, that the Blair Technique presents and then make the decision for yourself. But Doc, I appreciate your humility. I appreciate your your willingness to share as always. And uh, hopefully it brings a lot of value to the listeners and uh, at least gives them some insights into you know what a life and practice in this model looks like and, and the types of things that you think about over time. But, but you're exactly right. And, and I will say that your assessment of the situation for a young doc is exactly my experience. I got out of school. The first Blair adjustment I ever did was on the first patient in the practice I started after school. So, and, and I leaned into the confidence that this technique is solid and I don't need to have a million years worth of experience to help people better than if I just grabbed their neck and yanked it. Mm-hmm. Right. So there is a lot of uh, confidence that you can have in, in the scientific principles as they've been established doesn't mean we we rest on our laurels. We continue to honor Dr. Blair's legacy by having these discussions and, and continuing on. But at the same time, you're 100% true. And, and I was getting great results right away. I think I'm getting better results now. But as it, as it relates to a brand new doc, I don't think I would have done it any other way. So um, yeah. definitely echo that, that sentiment. And that's been my personal experience. So yeah. awesome. Any last words of encouragement uh, before we wind this one down? Well, you know, uh, we make fun of people who say the science is settled on something. Um, And I'm sure there are some things where the science is settled, but most of the time when people say that, it's not settled because that's not how science works. And that's how practice is as well. There are some definite truths. There are some things you can lean into that you can rely on. Is it 100% settled? Probably not. So it's okay to think and to wonder and to have these questions and sometimes to rely on somebody else's experience until you've built up your own, just like John was saying there. Hey, we just wanted to say thank you for listening to Atlas of Chiropractic. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Go ahead and subscribe to the show and turn on notifications so that you're the first to know about new episodes. Leave a rating and review to let others know how you really feel about the conversations we're having. And last thing, check the show notes for relevant links, contact info, and resources that we mentioned during this episode. 